Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by the U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly SLO and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 16, The Laws of Risk and Resilience. There's always a risk factor when making a decision. Each decision made can lead you to different pathways that can alter your journey. Sometimes one path is more risky than the other. The question here is, do you want to risk taking the easy path or follow the cautious path by becoming more familiar with the existing laws regarding safety? Audrey, we all make risk-reward decisions every day. Take driving. It's tempting when we want to get somewhere quickly to drive faster than the law permits. We don't always have that internal conversation with ourselves where we lay out the pros and cons of speeding. But subconsciously, we know we're putting ourselves at higher risk of an accident and also putting others at risk as well. And if we hurt someone and are taken before a judge, it'd be pretty hard to say, how should I have known that speeding was dangerous? While the same is true for owners of buildings that are risky, say with old wiring, or especially in places like California that are not up to modern earthquake standards. Madison Spock is a Southern California attorney who specializes in construction liability. He has some great and sobering insights into the risks building owners may unwittingly be exposed to if they don't take building safety seriously. Madison Spock. Yes, I am a uh, litigator. I uh, try business cases and represent real property owners, whether they consist of corporations or of individuals. Landowners face a really difficult environment uh, when it comes to, right now, when it comes to uh, seismic retrofit uh, uh, projects and uh, potential exposure to liability. Why should property owners be concerned about earthquake liability? Is it really that important? Well, property owners have two potential issues. One is uh, whether there's a, some sort of local ordinance, local law, which has been passed that requires them to do specific retrofitting to specific types of properties. The second is, is a general law of negligence, because even if a property owner has a deadline set by the local government on when seismic retrofitting must be performed, that doesn't create a safe harbor during which the property owner can take no action. The property owner is governed by principles of general negligence liability, which requires them to always use uh, good and reasonable care to protect the general public or to protect the constituents, you know, their leaseholders in their buildings, people who use, who rent, lease their buildings uh, from a harm that might occur in a, a large seismic event. So the end goal is to keep the people safe, whether they are the tenants or just people coming in and out of the building. This is ultimately the property owner's responsibility. 
if you have a, a restaurant or uh, you own any premises where there's a condition that might be dangerous to people who enter onto the premises, then you have a duty to make those premises safe for them. When it comes to a restaurant, if your floor is slippery or if you have liquid spilled on the floor, you've got to take immediate action. You have a general responsibility to make sure you're taking all reasonable steps that are necessary to protect the public that's using that premises. What is expected for the property owner to know about their building in order to avoid any risk? First rule of thumb is know your building. You need to know if you have an older building, what type of construction uh, that that building was made with, you know, when it was originally constructed and what uh, changes and what improvements have been made over the course of time. But you need to find out what ordinances your building is subject to. Second rule of thumb is to know what laws apply to your building and what your date is for compliance with any seismic ordinances. This sounds very detailed. Are there any examples you could give that would illustrate what you're talking about? There's a very good example. In fact, one of the interesting things about this entire area from a lawyer's perspective is there isn't a great deal of case law that has come down on these particular issues. But there was a case that came out of the December 22nd, 2003 San Simeon earthquake, where the owner of uh, the owners of the buildings in downtown Paso Robles, they were in fact in the San Simeon earthquake, there were actually 46 of those buildings were damaged. But one of the building, the Acorn building, the owner had a very dangerous building, but had not put into it the necessary work in order to make sure that the building had come into compliance. Paso Robles, that's right by San Luis Obispo. I've seen the city and they have some very old buildings. So what were the concerns about the Acorn building being in compliance with the codes? As of 2003, the date of the earthquake, compliance wasn't necessary. In fact, it was still uh, a number more than a decade off before compliance was necessary. So the question is, what did that owner need to do? Could that owner just sit back since the city had said you don't have to uh, actually comply uh, for more than a decade? Could you sit back and allow a dangerous condition to be in existence? The answer to that from the court was no, absolutely not. Even though you didn't have to comply with a local ordinance, there was still the law of general negligence. Notwithstanding the fact the city had set compliant dates way into the future, as a building owner, property owner, you owed a duty to people to make sure that, the, that you took necessary and reasonable steps to make the building safe. And in that case, what the court held was that didn't mean you had to accomplish the compliance. What you did have to do was you did have to take the steps to move the ball forward. You couldn't just sit back and do nothing. You had to know your building and you had to know what was necessary to do to bring it into a safe condition. What would be the first steps in this process? So what's the first thing you do? Talk to a structural engineer. They did that in this case and the structural engineer actually prepared a plan. So the question was, was that enough? The answer is no, because once the owner had the plan, the owner took no steps to implement a budget for making the repairs that were necessary or to actually spend what money was available, what would be reasonably available to make sure that those conditions were corrected. 
And a particularly bad fact in that case was that the owner actually made repairs to the building to the elevator system so that it could accommodate additional traffic to the second floor without actually making the retrofitting uh, repairs that were necessary. A plan with no action brings us back to square one. What did go wrong in this case? So the question was for the jury, was the owner taking reasonable steps necessary to protect the public? And the answer was no, because when the San Simeon earthquake hit at 11 in the morning, two of the workers tried to flee the building. And as they were fleeing the building, it actually collapsed on the two women. And those two women were the two lives that were lost in the San Simeon earthquake. What a tragedy. I guess the property owner was faced with the decision to address the need and eliminate that risk with retrofitting and other measures, or roll the dice and leave things as they are and hope for the best. What steps could the owner have taken? So what should the owner have done? Should the owner have spent money on an elevator system that was going to increase business and traffic, increase the revenues, a reasonable thing to do from a business perspective, but not a reasonable way to allocate the funds that were available when it came to assessing the need to make the building better constructed to accommodate a large seismic event. So that's the sort of steps, the sort of progress, the sort of looking at start to finish what an owner might have done, could have done, should have done, and didn't do that a jury would consider. And this case, the case that arose out of the San Simeon earthquake in Paso Robles, is at this point the only really definitive case that has come up on the question of the applying general negligence principles to a seismic event and setting the standard for a property owner in those circumstances. So if the city says the property owner has a specific time limit to be in compliance with the retrofit ordinance, does this mean the city will take responsibility for the liability up until that date? Can I sit back and do nothing because I've got 10 years before the the compliance date for the ordinance hits? No, that's what the case, in the cases generally referred to as the Myrick case, Myrick against Mustani, uh, that's what the appellate court held in that case. And that's now the law in California. About Myrick versus Mustani, this was a landmark case regarding landlord liability when it comes to building safety and being prepared for a natural disaster. In this case, the building owners were found liable when two people died as a result of a building collapse during an earthquake. What made this case unique was that the landlord was still within the city's retrofit ordinance deadlines, but had not made reasonable efforts to address the issues they knew they had in their building. They had an engineer inspect their building, they knew there was risk, but they didn't make a plan to fix it. The judge ruled that they were liable. The award in the Myrick case was a, a total of $2 million. Uh, I dare say uh, if that case were retried uh, under the same circumstances, that number would be much higher, particularly under the circumstances of that case. So if you extrapolate out the potential of harm to life or to property, a serious injury occurs, the exposure is absolutely devastating, not just not just to the business, but then there are issues of whether the owner is going to be held personally liable. That's the ultimate uh, consequence of not dealing with 
these circumstances in a way that's responsible and careful. Some people see choosing resiliency as expensive. Would you say it's more expensive? How about in the long run? You know, there's going to involve some expense, but it's almost always an expense that's, if you don't have that knowledge, an expense that's well worth undertaking to get the first steps. To have someone do a quick diagnosis of what the problems are, those are the, the those are the steps that are not expensive to take. Not taking them can end up as catastrophic liability and catastrophic personal issues you know, that go on forever and ever when you've had gone through something like that. As an attorney in this field, what would be your first piece of advice to a business or property owner? How can they protect themselves against liability? My first advice would be: don't talk to your lawyer. Talk to your engineer. Talk to your architect. Talk to someone who can tell you what the condition of the building is, because a lawyer can walk through your building saying, "We want to protect you from liability." That's not something that plays well. Uh, ultimately, if you have to go to trial, trial on that issue, get to a structural engineer, to an architect, to an expert who can identify potentially dangerous conditions on the property and can identify what the remedies are for mitigating that possible problem. And someone who knows what amount of money it takes to fix it, because surprisingly, a lot of retrofitting is not as expensive as people think. It can often be done at a very reasonable price, but talk to someone who can identify the problem, who can price it for you, who can tell you what a schedule is, can tell you how to implement it, and can tell you what you do next. That makes sense. An engineer or architect would know much more about the safety of a building. All in all, it sounds like incorporating resilience into your business plan would be the best way to plan. It's looking at the bigger picture, but being ready for the worst. It, it is. In fact, you'll. Probably fine now, unless uh, you're planning to acquire uh, new construction. You're probably going to have to talk to your lender to make sure that you are budgeting for those problems. Planning is everything. We did a seminar, a set of seminars last year, throughout the entire county of Los Angeles, and spoke to a number of different landowners. Uh, it was not a bad thing that they were there. It was a good thing. They may have been learning things and hearing things they didn't want to hear, and potential exposure and expenses they were going to have to make. But that's the first step: learning what the problem is. Hmm. How would you know if you have enough information to make judgments about the safety of your building? That's why you have to talk to an expert. You talk to an engineer. You talk to a contractor. You talk to an architect.、Uh, and the reason you do that is to make sure that the assessment that you get back is made by an expert who knows that particular area of construction. So, so that when you get an answer, you get a correct answer. If what you get back is an answer that your building is fine and you've hired the right expert, there may be nothing to do. Your building may be in great shape. If it turns out that expert is wrong, you know there it's, it can be a great tragedy. But from the perspective of the owner, if I'm a building owner, I have that opinion to rely on. Just as many people rely on advice of counsel in doing particular steps throughout the course of their business, then from a liability perspective, you've done what you can do. You can't you you yourself are not qualified to make the assessment of the building, but if you hire someone who is qualified, 
you can rely on their answer to some degree. You can't just blindly rely on it if you know there's a problematic condition or if you know that type of construction generally is a problem or someone has told you there's a problem with the building, get a second opinion. If you get the second opinion says you're okay, you're moving into the territory where there's no reasonable uh, basis for you to go further. Yes, multiple opinions sound like a great way to go. It's like double checking your work. Having a second set of eyes on your project will allow your chances of error to diminish. Teamwork makes the dream work. A question on liability. Let's say a tenant sees a crack in their ceiling formed from the pouring rain, but they do not notify the landlord. If the roof were to collapse, is the tenant liable because they saw the crack and didn't let the landlord know? Or would the landlord still be liable? Anyone who sees a dangerous condition needs to pass on the word because you, as a, a, a rule of general negligence, you need to take care that your conduct does not result in other people being harmed. You may have absolutely nothing to do with the premises, but the fact that you have the knowledge, particularly if it's within your demised premises where no one else would be able to see what the problem is, the tenant has a duty to then go tell someone this problem has arisen, just as you would if there was all of a sudden you found a little uh, something that was emitting a noxious gas. You know, you just can't let that let that circumstance or that condition exist on the property without telling someone because it creates danger for other people on the property. Many landlords are actually themselves tenants because a tenant may have subtenants. Uh, and so in those circumstances, clearly the tenant is taking over some sort of managerial role uh, in connection with the condition of the building. That's an easy question. The question is when an, a tenant who has demised premises, who, who, who works in the premises uh, or operates a store, operates a place where the public can enter, uh, that, that becomes a much more difficult question because that tenant may be the only person who knows the dangerous condition exists. And that's why, uh, under those circumstances, the duty of the tenant may be heightened as compared to seeing a crack in a stairwell you know, or a common area wall, uh, exterior portion of the building that everyone can see. And certainly you would expect the landlord uh, to observe just by virtue of having maintenance crews on the property. Evan. Madison really got down into the details when it comes to the laws of risk and resilience. He helped me understand why it is so important for the property owner to be well-educated on this topic. And to take sensible and meaningful steps towards reducing building risk. Ignorance, willful or otherwise, is not a good way for owners to avoid liability when it comes to making sure their buildings are safe in earthquakes, hurricanes, or other natural disasters. Cool, so who's going to be our next interview? We've got an exciting interview coming up. It's an innovation panel of industry leaders whose companies have developed cool new products that can make our buildings more resilient. Great, looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Madison Spock or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, 
innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with the Innovation Panel that Evan assembled. <laughs>